on here a slide here. Let's say this together as we begin. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you so much. I want to uh, invite you to turn to Micah, the book of Micah in the Old Testament. Uh, If you have a Bible and want to turn there, if you want to look it up on your phone, we're going to be in Micah this morning and for the next several weeks. And I want to, before we jump into that, I want to just thank you, first of all, for saying that prayer with me. Uh, And I want to explain to you that from, from now through the end of the year, our plan is to say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday together. Um, we imagine it being led a lot, being often led by Chris or myself, but uh, maybe also by some of you. And so I want you to be anticipating that. And, and here's why we're doing this. We're, what we're wondering is, is this question. What would happen to a church if they began to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray together every single week over the course of a year? What would happen to a church if they were to pray this prayer that's been prayed for 2,000 years by followers of Jesus every single week together over the course of a year? How might the practice of saying that prayer together shape and form our lives? How, how, will, it, how will it inform us as we live in the way of Jesus? How will it open our eyes and open our ears to things that we need to see or need to hear Um, I don't know what all the answers to all those questions are, but what I know for sure is that I think uh, that the ways that it will become meaningful will be made clear in the practice of praying the prayer together. Uh, And so we're excited about that and and want you to be anticipating that. If you don't have that prayer memorized uh, over the course of the year, I I hope that that will become something that you have kind of in your uh, tool, tool bag as a resource, a spiritual resource for your own life. Uh, that you'll be able to learn that prayer and memorize it and allow it to settle into your heart over the course of the year as we say it together each and every week. I do also want to make uh, just a couple of uh, statements really quickly. Uh, We've we've talked about uh, quite a bit our stewardship process that we're in the midst of. I want to remind you again that today is uh, really, you can do it after today, but we're really trying to make a push to get everybody to turn their stewardship card in today or to make a pledge online today. We left some cards in the pews, so there might be one around you. If not, they're around at the room, at the, in the tables around the room. And so um, please do that. If you want to do it online, you can go to our ch- church website, kaufmanchurch.org, and do that, that, uh, that at that location. And again, your pledge is so helpful in allowing uh, our deacons and ministry leaders and our staff to, to create a budget that is in line with our spending. Uh, and so... Uh, thank you in advance for being a part of that. Also, I want to just mention to all of our men, uh, if you haven't signed up for our men's retreat, that's coming up this Friday and Saturday night. There's a Yeti cooler that's sitting down here on the front row. This is the least of the reasons you should sign up for the men's retreat. But if you need a really low bar reason to sign up, this Yeti cooler will be given away as a door prize at the men's retreat. So there you go. Uh, but we're going to have a great weekend together. Excited about that. Doing that with the Eastern Hills Church in Athens uh, and uh, you can sign up also on our website. That, all that information is in the bulletin. So all those commercials and a- announcements out of the way. Today we begin 
a new study, a new sermon series that we're calling Do Love Walk. Um, And for the next five weeks, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Micah. And these words, do love and walk, are based upon the uh, passage in Micah 6, 8, uh, which is sort of the main idea for the book of Micah. Uh, It's a passage you may be familiar with. Uh, Or you may have heard it before at some point. And this is what it says, Micah 6, verse 8. Micah, speaking for God to the people, says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, that's to do. To love mercy, love and to walk humbly with your God. Do love and walk. It's a short but important verse uh, that would also be easy to memorize over the course of this series. Uh, And you you may also find it helpful to read or to listen to uh, the the book of Micah over the next week or two as we kind of think about this, this one verse, really, over the next few weeks in this series. You might find it helpful to read the whole book. It's a, it's a short book of the Bible, seven chapters, and so I would encourage you to do that by yourself, uh, reading it or listening to it in the car, do it with others who may be in your home, uh, and I think that you'll find that helpful as we, as we navigate uh, this book and this, this verse over the next several weeks. Now, not much is known about Micah the prophet before God calls him to be a prophet. Uh, What we have is what the story tells us, and this is what it says beginning in Micah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision that he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, and listen, earth, and all who live in it. That the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. We don't know much about Micah, but what we know from this verse is that Micah was a prophet that lived in the 8th century and that he was from the village of Morsheth. Morsheth was a small rural village that was about 25 miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. And we know that he lived in the 8th century Uh, based upon the fact that God called him during the reigns of these three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which is around the same time, actually, that some other prophets are doing their work in Israel. Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos are all prophets who are doing their work of prophesying to the people in and around the same time that Micah was doing his work in Israel. Interestingly enough, Isaiah and Micah being contemporaries and being you know, prophets who, who worked in Israel for around the same amount of time are also both two of the prophets who speak about a coming Messiah that will arrive in the world one day. Isaiah is sort of known as you know, the prophet that does that the most and speaks about that the most. But there's another passage in Micah chapter 5, which we're not going to look at extensively or, or at all really in this series, um, but that is often read around Christmas time and around uh, during the Advent season. And so that, that you see some kind of interchange there, even that Micah talks about some of the same things that Isaiah talks about in his work. And so like these other fellow prophets, 
Micah lived in a really unique time in Israel's history. What we know that was about what was going on during that time in Israel's history was that the kingdom uh, was divided into two kingdoms. Uh, you had the northern kingdom of Israel. It, it had ten tribes, and that was called Israel. It was later. It would later be ultimately destroyed. And then you had the southern kingdom that was two tribes that was known as Judah. And both of these kingdoms were kind of under threat or were being threatened by the massive sort of global power at the time, the nation of Assyria. And God sends Micah, this relatively unknown guy, from a small village just outside of Jerusalem to leave that small village and to go to the big city of Jerusalem and to prophesy and speak to the people. And his main job is this. His main job, which is really the main job of most prophets, is to help the people stay aware of God and stay alert to what God is doing in the world and their lives and to be attentive to God's voice, uh, to wake up to the ways that, that they might not be doing what God requires of them, right? They're, they're, they're sort of the preachers of that day, and they would go and remind people about things that God had been doing or had said in the past from some time ago. And so one of Micah's major themes is that the people of, is, of Israel are mistreating their own. Right? And God is fed up with it. God's had enough of it. God's seen the way that they treat people, and he wants them to know that it's not okay. The most vulnerable people in their communities, the most vulnerable people in their communities are the most neglected people. The most vulnerable people in their communities are the most neglected people. The people that are the most in need of care the most in need of attention, the most in need of love, the most in need of mercy, the most in need of justice are the ones who receive it the least. They think, interestingly enough, the people think that their greatest threat is the nation of Assyria that is on the outside of their borders. But what Micah reveals to them over the course of this book is that the greatest threat is not outside their borders. Their greatest threat is within their borders because of the way that they're treating the most neglected and overlooked people in their society. Which really, if we're honest, can be what nations tend to do. Always paying attention to the external threats, but never completely dealing with the problems that swirl about constantly internally. And come to think of it, this is not just what nations do, this is what humans do too. Right? We can be so focused, church, we can be so focused on everything else that's going on in our lives, our, our schedules, our agendas, whatever it may be, the stuff that fills our life. We can be so focused on all of those external things that we never, over the course of our lives, properly deal with our own hearts. You hear me? Like we never actually listen to what God wants to say to us. We never open our ears enough to be attentive to how God might want to speak to our lives because we're so concerned about all the other things. We never are quiet enough to listen to what God wants us to hear. And this is what Micah talks about. And so it's relevant for us as much as it was relevant for them in that day. I want you to listen to what Micah says right after the, the most well-known verse that we just read in Micah 6.8. This is what he says beginning in verse 9. 
He said, and I'm actually going to read this part from the message uh, translation because I just I think that the language is contemporary, modern language, and I think that you'll get a sense of what exactly it is that God was trying to communicate through the prophet Micah. Micah says, attention, God calls out to the city. If you know what's good for you, you'll listen. So listen, all of you. This is serious business. Do you expect me to overlook obscene wealth you've piled up by cheating and fraud? Do you think I'll tolerate shady deals and shifty scheming? I'm tired of the violent rich bullying their way with bluffs and lies. Can you hear it? Right? The rich take advantage of and mistreat the poor. There's exploitation and dishonesty in the marketplace, right? People go to the market and they try to make a they try to buy or sell some good or service that they need and the rich recognize that the poor can't can't do, you know, can't afford all the sorts of things that they might need and so there's exploitation and dishonesty in the marketplace. The citizens are lying and cheating one another. And God is tired of it and God wants Micah to tell the people that he's tired of it. And this is a problem that's within their hearts and it's within their entire nation. So Micah speaks to the people on behalf of God, which is, and this is basically a rebuke. Right? He's basically saying, you guys, wake up. Pay attention to what you're doing. Look at your lives and how you're living. It's basically a rebuke, but I want you to notice it's not a rebuke for not going to the temple. It's not a rebuke for not going to church. It's not a rebuke for failing to give your your offerings to the Lord, your financial offerings, your money to the Lord. It's a rebuke for failing to treat people as human beings who are made in the image of God. It's a, it's, a, it's a rebuke for failing to love your neighbor as yourself. And God wants to, wants to be so clear about how fed up he is with this that God does a really unusual thing. God brings a charge against Israel. Basically like taking them to court. Not really, of course, but the language we're about to read, you're going to hear this sort of legal language. Scholars call it kind of a a covenantal, like there's this sort of covenantal charge that's being used. It's like a lawsuit, you might say, a covenantal lawsuit that's being brought against Israel. So I want you to listen, back up, and we're going to stay in chapter 6. We're going to back up to the beginning of chapter 6 in verse 1. And I want you to listen to the sort of legal language that exists in these words. And this is, again, right before the verse that we're going to spend our entire series looking at in verse 8. But this is what it says. Listen to what the Lord says, Micah Micah says to the people. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. You can hear, again, this legal language. Charges are brought. Accusations are made. God tells Micah, go and plead my case and let before the mountains who will be my witness. Why, why the mountains? Why would the mountains be God's witness about what is going on in Israel's life? Because a long time ago, God made a promise to Israel. Actually, God made it to Abraham, but it was about Israel that God would bless Israel. 
And none of those people who are alive in Micah's day were alive when God made that promise, right? When God made that covenantal commitment to them. But who was around? The mountains were around. Creation was around when God made his covenant promise to Israel. And so God says there's no better witness than the witness who's been here all along since the beginning, creation itself. But then, instead of accusing the people with a whole series of failures, if you think about like a lawsuit and people bringing charges against someone, that like what would happen next often is that there would be this whole list of failures that you might expect in a lawsuit. But instead of that, God begins his speech by asking two questions. What have I done to you and how have I burdened you? It's almost as if, if you listen to those questions, it's almost as if God's, God is searching God's own heart to determine whether or not there's some sort of evidence. Is there any evidence out there anywhere? You tell me. What have I done? How have I burdened you? You, you tell me. Is there any evidence out there of unfaithfulness on my part, God says? And then God's question ends with this request, this demand for a response. But since none is given, God, through Micah, cites four examples, four pieces of evidence, you might say, that prove the ways that God has been faithful. We're going to pick up beginning in verse 3. This is what it says in Micah 6, 3 through 5. I'm going to read those questions again. He says, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then he begins to go through some of their history. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered? Do you you remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you might know the righteousness and the righteous acts of the Lord? Do you remember these stories, God says through Micah? And Michael quickly references these four stories. They are certainly not the only four stories in Israel's history, but they're four really important stories. What's the point of of God sharing these stories as reminders for the people of Israel? God's saying, this, this this is the point. God's saying, look at my track record. Look at my track record. Right? Where how have I burdened you? How have I been unfaithful to you? What have I done to you? I've been good to you. I've never left you or turned my back on you. I've been with you, and I'm going to stay with you because I am faithful. I want you to just think about these four examples that are used for just a minute. Number one, God bringing them out of Egypt. They're in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God delivers them from that captivity. Number two, not only does God deliver them, but God doesn't leave them alone. God gives them a leader, Moses. And I love that also Micah includes Moses' brother Aaron and Moses' sister Miriam, who are lesser characters in that whole Exodus story. But Micah wants you to know that God saw them as really important pieces to the story. And then number three in a story that's from Numbers chapter 22, God delivers them from Balak, the Moabite king, that tried to prevent them after they had gotten out of Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness, before they go into the promised land, Balak, the Moabite king, tried to prevent them from going into the promised land. He hired this wicked prophet, Balaam, to curse them, to try to curse God's people. Do you remember the story? But when Balaam opened his mouth, 
He blessed them instead of cursing them because God was at work. And then this last story where he references this this part of the land, this geographical part of the land from Shittim to Gilgal. What is that? What is that piece of land? What's going on there? Well, if you look at the map, right, right in that area is where the Jordan River is. What happens in Israel's story at the Jordan River? They arrive and they realize we can't get across that by ourselves. So what did God do? God parts the waters and they walk across on dry ground into the promised land. Four stories from Israel's history that God is saying through Micah, come on, don't you remember all of that? Like you may not have lived it, but don't you remember that your ancestors lived it? All of these salvation moments, all these moments where I showed my grace and my mercy and I came to your rescue, all these moments when you saw with your own eyes and you experienced for yourselves how much I love you. And it's not the primary point of my sermon, but it might be a meaningful thing for you to do in your own life this week to just spend some time thinking about how in your own story, in your own history, what are four stories from your life? When you can look back, because right now you might not be experiencing, you may, whatever you're experiencing right now may not feel like God is with you, may not feel like God has expressed God's love for you. But I promise you that if you reflect and you begin to think back about some ways that God has been faithful, it probably will not take any of us very long to identify some of those ways. What are the salvation moments in your life? I'm not talking about the one salvation moment. I'm talking about all the ways that God has saved you over and over, where God has redeemed you and rescued you over and over, where God has shown his grace and his mercy to you. And that's really what God is wanting to happen. He's wanting Micah's words to elicit some sort of reflection, to bring about some sort of reflection that Israel goes, oh, yeah, I, I remember now all the ways that God has been faithful. But what does Israel say in response? Well, we actually don't get to hear their actual words. But what Micah does is sort of brilliant. He imagines what they might say in response. Or I like to think that what he says next in verse 6 and 7 might have been some actual responses that he heard when he said those words to the people that we now have recorded. He's repeating them, repeating things that he's heard other people say. So if you listen to this, as you listen to it, I want you to picture that this is what Israel says in response to God telling these four stories from their history. Listen to it in verse 6. Israel says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can you hear it? Micah imagines that these are the kinds of questions that Israel would ask in response to God telling them, what have I done? How have I burdened you? Think about your past and all the ways that I've been faithful. And it's almost as a way to try to defend themselves, to try to explain, right? Look, God, we've been faithful to you too. Look at us. Is this not enough, they say? Do you want more than burnt offerings? Would you be more pleased with us if we increased how many animals we sacrifice? Would thousands of rams be be better? Would more olive oil be better? Offering that, what if we gave you rivers of olive oil, God? Would that be enough? 
Or even if, if that's not enough or if thousands of rams are not enough, what, I, know, I know, God, what if we gave you our firstborn child? Is that what you want us to offer you? You hear it? They're asking, what will it take, God, for you to drop the charges against us? They're responding to the accusations that have been placed against them. And they're saying, what will it take for you to drop the charges, for us to settle this outside of court, God? And their focus is on excessive giving, as if God is primarily interested in the amount that they give or the cost and expense of their gifts. And something interesting that I learned in preparing for this sermon, I want you to notice, too, that everything that they offer are things that they do inside the temple. All things that they do in church, to use our language. Like they think if they increase something that they're doing at church, then somehow it will impact God's decision. If I show up to church regularly, will that help God? If I give 10% of my income... If I teach children's worship so Diana will stop asking me, God, will that finally allow you to get all the accusations that you could levy against me to be dropped? I know it's been in the bulletin for months, God, but if I finally offer to serve as a greeter so that Bethany doesn't ask me anymore, will you finally hear, you stop view, start viewing me differently, God? Will that have any impact on how, how you view me? No, it won't, God. These offerings are too small, you say? Okay, well, what about a small group? I, I know that they've been mentioning small groups. Maybe I should finally join a small group. What if instead, what if instead of a small group, if that's not going to work, I know, God, I know this will be the one. What if instead of just committing to regularly attend church on Sunday mornings, what if I promise to never miss a Sunday this entire year, even if it falls on Christmas or New Year's? Then will that, will that be good enough, God? Will we be good in our relationship? Because I know we think that you keep attendance in heaven and how that works in heaven might, might be impacted by how much I'm here. And so I want to make sure we're good. No, none of those things will work. What about reading my Bible? If I read my Bible more, God, will that make a difference in how you view me? What if I pray more, God? Will that make a difference in how, how you view me? More prayer? If I don't fall asleep every time I start to pray, will that finally change the way that you view me in our relationship, God? No? None of that. God, what is it going to take? Is it going to take rivers of oil? Is it going to take thousands of rams? i got to give all of my savings to you and not just 10%? I know. I know what I'll do. I'll move to the mission field and teach people about the love of Jesus. Surely that will be enough for you, God. These are our equivalent examples of what Israel has done in response to the accusations that have been brought against them. Do you hear it? Israel is so focused on exaggerated offerings of thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil, on a precious child being offered to God. They're so focused on that that it reveals, the fact that they're focused on it reveals the actual problem is that Israel doesn't get it. That's the problem. What do I mean when I say Israel doesn't get it? Think about it for a moment with me. What's the purpose of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? What role do animal sacrifices play in restoring a person's relationship with God? What Israel thought, right, was it was just a means of sort of bribing God by giving him this thing that he, they thought God wanted. And they thought if we do more of it, enormous quantities of it, 
then maybe, right? Like, look, God, look, we're sacrificing. Here it is on the altar. Aren't you pleased with us? Is this the point? No. Sacrifices were an outward sign of an inner attitude of a person's broken and contrite heart. They sacrificed as a way to express an inward thing that was happening in their lives. Right? It isn't like, and if, if a lot of us, we've understood sacrifices a lot of times this way, but it's not like that God is, is going, hmm, I love the aroma of burning lambs. That's not what God was doing. It's not what God wanted. What God wanted was their heart. God's saying, what I want is not for you to do all the right religious practices, all the sacrifices. What I want is you. And listen, what I'm about to say might step on some of our toes a little bit, but I want you to hear me say it in love, right? The issue is that so many people think that what it takes to be in right relationship with God and to be in good standing with God is to do all the right religious practices, And this is what God, I think, wants to say to us today. All of that stuff is not the primary point. Like what you do in church is not the main point. It matters. Oh, it really matters. I don't want you to hear me saying it doesn't. Like going to church matters. Worshiping with other believers, I think, is an essential part of the faith of a follower of Jesus. I have personally never known a committed follower of Jesus Christ that did not gather with a community of Christians regularly. So going to church matters. But too many times people think, I've gone to church, now I can live the rest of my life however I want, the rest of my week however I want. Right? And when we do that, we miss the point. Just like Israel. When we do that, it's like sacrificing an animal because we think God likes the smell of burning lambs. You with me? What God wants is our heart. What God wants is your heart. You can do all the right religious practices. Like over the last 20 years, like if church attendance matters, like I have the largest mansion in heaven, right? Because I have to be here, right? So that, it doesn't, it's not, it's not about that. It matters, but what God wants is our heart, our lives, ourselves. You can do all the religious practices, you know this, and not ever give your heart to God. You can do all the right religious practices and never actually give your life to God. In fact, I would say, I would say it, I would go a step further and say it this way. I would say that the purpose, I want you to think about all the things we do, right? We, every single week, during, over the, just as a community, as a church community, right? All the things we do. Think, think about anything we do. Men's retreat that's coming up. We're, gonna, we're bringing back Serve Day this year, March 26th. Mark your calendars for that. Why do we do that? Why do we go out into the community and have all these service projects that we do? Why do we do that? Why do we have classes and small groups? And why do we take communion? And why do we sing? And why do we study God's word together? Why do we, all the things that we do, right? All of those things. Just make, make a long list of all the things that a church does. Every church does them in different ways. Some church has the things that they do better than other churches. And that's all fine. It's all a part of what God's doing in God's kingdom. I want you to think about all the things that happen. And I want you to, I want you to what if you reframed how, what, what we do when we do those things? 
The way I think about it is that when we are engaging in some sort of practice in our, of our faith, like we're practicing here in the community because we want to be a certain kind of people in our everyday lives. Right? So just a couple of examples. We're practicing giving our money here because we want to be generous in the world. And being generous is hard. And I need practice. Anybody else? If I didn't, if, if the church didn't ask me to give money, I would probably not be inclined to give money. Naturally. Like this is part, so we, we practice that here as a way to then be generous. It doesn't mean, you don't see a homeless person be like, I'm already giving my money to the church. So you better get some, get some help from somebody else. Right? We don't do that. We, we practice here, and then we live our life there, and we go, oh, I'm already a generous person. I see someone in need. Now I can still do that too because I've already learned at church the practice of holding on to my possessions with an open hand. You hear me? We serve here because this is who we want to be in the world, servants like Jesus. We value community and relationships and spiritual conversations here as the church because we know that this is the thing, I promise you, this is the thing. Community and relationships and spiritual conversations are the thing right now at our point in history that the world is starving for and can't find in the most meaningful ways. And the church has an answer for it. And so we model community and relationships. We experience community and relationships. We live transformed lives here and have spiritual conversations here so that when we step back into our everyday life, we go, this is already a part of my identity, a part of who I am. The way I think about it is like this is the dress rehearsal, right? There's no audience here. When, when, a, when, a, when a play is being performed, we all show up and buy the ticket for the performance. But way before that day, that group of people has practiced over and over. They've memorized their lines. They even had a dress rehearsal where they got all their costumes on. And they played the parts and they did the whole thing. And there was an empty crowd sitting out there. No one to clap. Right? There was nobody watching. This is the dress rehearsal. What God is most interested in is not our rams and our olive oil and our offerings, but us. Our hearts, our lives, that is the very best thing that you can give to God. And that, all of that, is the background to Micah 6.8. After they have made this peace offering of some rams and olive oil and their firstborn children, then Micah says in verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, remember that you're mortal, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? Is it, is it rams? No. Is it, is it olive oil? No. Is it, is it firstborn children? No. It's to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See, Micah knew what Israel did not, that the real threat to our lives is never the enemy on the outside. It is most often the one that is inside of us. What makes us good is not our religious acts. What makes us good is that we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. Amen? We live in a time, church, I believe with all my heart, that we cannot rely on accidental goodness. There's a lot of accidental goodness in our world. 
And I don't want us to incorrectly identify that accidental goodness as always the work of God, because sometimes it isn't. It's good, and it can be a good thing, but accidental goodness will not, will not win in the face of intentional evil in our world. Good must go on the offensive, and that's what Micah is calling these people to, right? Going on the offensive with your life, which is good, made good because of Jesus Christ, going on the offensive against the gates of hell. And that begins with us choosing to surrender our lives and our hearts to the Lord. That begins with us understanding that what God wants is us. God wants our hearts. God wants a relationship with us. And all of those things, prayer and study and showing up for church and serving and giving and living surrendered lives, all of those things help and inform and shape how we do that, how we give our hearts to God. But they're not they're not the main reason. They're not the main thing, right? What's most important, more important than any other practice, any other practice you might have committed to in 2023 is the commitment to surrender to Jesus Christ. Some of you, maybe for the first time, maybe this will be the year where you go, you know, I've never, I've never actually given my life fully to Jesus. I've never totally surrendered. Really, the, the practice of baptism and going underwater and coming up, it's hard because it's an act of surrender. It's you saying, okay, I've tried it my way long enough, and I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm ready to do it your way, God. Right? And for some of you, 2023 might be the year where you go, I'm finally going to do that for the first time. I'm really going to surrender for the first time. I'm going to make some kind of public confession of my faith. And if you want to do that, of course, you know we're always ready and would love to talk to you about that. But for many of us, others of us, that have already made that decision. All, we're we're like, more like the people here in Micah, right? We, we, know, we know that the threat around us is not the, uh, real, the real threat, that the threat within us, the evil that Satan is always at work within us, is the real threat to our lives. And we maybe just sometimes get off course. We forget. We, we kind of neglect the, you know, the, forma, the formation of our faith, feeding our souls, and so while we may have made a decision long ago, we might need to be reminded that God still wants our heart. That is still the thing that God wants most from you, is your heart, your life. And the first steps toward giving God our heart, Micah says, are this. Do, love, and walk. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And for the next four weeks after today, we're going to dig into this one verse and take each one of these phrases at a time. And then we're going to conclude the series with something else at the end. And think together about what this looks like. What does it look like for us to start here? Doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. I'm really excited, if it's not obvious to you today, about the journey and about the study. And I hope that you will be too. I encourage you to think and reflect on this verse this week. Maybe, again, spend some time in the book as a whole now that we've kind of been able to give a little bit more of an overview about it. Uh, and let's come anticipating what God wants to do in our lives over the next several weeks together. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, when we, uh, as we sang earlier, when we survey your love that is most clearly displayed on the cross, your faithfulness that is pictured to us on the cross is so amazing and so divine our response is that we realize that this, this act of love demands our life.
and our all. And God, we, we pray this morning that you'll help us to hear the words from Micah to those people and to these people, us, as we think about our own lives and the ways that we can so easily miss the point and forget that what you want most is us and what you want most is our hearts and our lives. Forgive us, Father, when we get distracted by all the many things that are threats from without, from the outside, and in the process neglect the work of giving our lives over to you every single day. Helping to see your kingdom come and your will be done in us on this piece of earth and dirt as it is in heaven. And I pray, Father, that you will form and shape us into the people that you have called us to be. Help us to remember our true identity today from these ancient words in the book of Micah. We thank you for Scripture and the way that it continues thousands and thousands of years later, all the way back from that 8th century prophet to speak with relevancy and truth to our lives in 2023. This is a, a, a gift that you have given us a part of our story, a part of our heritage that you've brought about for us to see today. We pray, Father, that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you might want us to see and hear from your word today. We pray in the all-powerful and mighty name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing another song. Uh, if you want to pray with somebody around you, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you want to let us know about some way that we can pray for you. You can share those prayer requests by texting those in. Let's sing this song, and then we'll be closed in our final prayer.